Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In Troy there lies the sea. From Isles of Greece, the princes Orgulus, their high blood chafed, and to the port of Athens sent their ships, fraught with the ministers and instruments of cruel war. Sixty and nine, that wore their crownets regal, from the Athenian bay set forth toward Phrygia, and their vow is made to ransack Troy. Hello and welcome to The Plays The Thing. My name is Tim McIntosh. You have joined us for a one-episode podcast on Shakespeare's play Troilus and Cressida. You just heard a character from another very famous literary work, a character Ulysses. So Ulysses, the Latinized version of Odysseus, the star of the Odyssey, and also kind of a supporting role in Homer's Iliad. So this is Troilus and Cressida. Uh, It is the story of a romantic relationship that happens kind of in the backdrop of the Iliad. And we are about to get into that. But first, I want to introduce our guests. Brandon LeBlanc, Hello. From the Circe Institute has joined us. Brandon, welcome back to the show. It's good to be here. And we are joined again by Sarah Jane Bentley, one of our favorite commentators from probably three years ago, two or three years ago, Sarah Jane. And you have been living your life in (laughs) Great Britain and we've been living our lives here. But now we are all reunited. Welcome back to the show. We're really, really glad to have you back. Thank you. It's great to be here and to be reminded of how the Circe network is ubiquitous. <laughs> it's <laughs> wait. How so? How is the Circe network ubiquitous? Yeah, I like the sound. Well, of that. there's Brandon in Texas, and I'm here in Windsor, and you're in Georgia. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I've heard that there's going to be an Australian um, 
conference virtual up, yeah. conference yeah not too long from now so the gradual takeover of the of the organized world is underway brandon yes. what were you going to say well i was just going to tell sarah jane that i'm i oversee the area that does the podcast now and i tried to throw my weight around a little bit and tell tim that i wanted to be on on a play with you and he threw his weight right back and said sure sure on well do you can do one episode you can do a one episode play with sarah jane <laughs> <laughs> We've only got Sarah Jane for one episode. We're gonna try. We're gonna try for something else later. But but, <laughs> um, okay, you guys. Uh, the opening narration that we heard was from a narrator, like something that Shakespeare doesn't do very often. He does it at the beginning of Henry V. He does it on a couple of other occasions. But he introduces a narrator, and he basically tells us the backdrop is the Iliad. Um, so I had this thought as I was reading this play and as I watched a version of it later, here's my analogy, okay? My analogy is this, this play is Shakespeare, one of the absolute, if not the greatest, you know, writer in the English language, at least, maybe, you know, in the Western world, covering one of the other absolute titans of Western literature, Homer, right? He's doing his own cover of Homer and Shakespeare is doing it at the absolute height of his powers. This is in the middle of his most, you know, incredible work at the time of his great tragedies. He's reeling off Hamlet and Lear and Macbeth. So everything is poised for this play to be absolutely great. It's like it's the Beatles covering Elvis at the height of the Beatles' powers. That's what this play is to me. And yet, this is one of Shakespeare's least popular plays. I need an explanation. Can you guys supply an explanation? (laughs) I'm just glad to hear that that's the case because I felt, I was hoping maybe it wasn't just me. So you're here to you're you want to hear the case. No, well, I'm, I'm glad to what hear you that it's one of his least popular plays because I was I was not feeling it for most of the most of the uh-huh. time. So uh-huh. it does feel different. It. Yeah, it feels different when you read it, doesn't it? Um, it was categorized as one of the problem plays, so it's known from the 1800s onwards really as a problem play alongside hamlet uh all's well that ends well and measure for measure and the argument is that a a problem play is one that can't be categorized easily generically Hmm. so Mm. after reading this play we're left wondering is it a comedy is it a tragedy is it a history and the other problem with it is the moral ambiguity the kind of moral confusion that we're left with as the audience so Yes, I think we've all had a similar response to it, which is what audiences throughout the history of the play have shared. What is the case to be made for Troilus and Cressida being a tragedy, Sarah Jane? If it's going to be grouped as a tragedy, why a tragedy? That's a good question. (laughs) That's why I asked you and not me. Yeah, because when we think about the characters, there are no real heroes in this play. They don't begin from any kind of height, and so they can't really fall. They're abundant in their faults. 
leaving us wondering what their virtues really are. So one reason I think maybe that in it, in in the legend of Troy, Troy falls. And and then out of that we get the birth of Britain, because Aeneas mm. flees, find founds Rome, and then his grandson Brutus makes it all the way to the British Isles and establishes Britain, which is Brute, and then becomes Britain. But so maybe it's something about the tragic origins of Shakespeare's nation. I'm not entirely sure. Okay, yeah. I'm, I'm really glad you said that, though, because I, I didn't even think about that Britain chasing its line back through Aeneas. That makes more sense <laughs> uh, for me the way that the way that the Greeks are portrayed, particularly in the play. Um, and then it 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 would then it went, might because it has kind of a jaundiced look, Brandon. The, like, yeah, like Shakespeare's view seems pretty jaundiced about the the Greeks. Yeah, I agree that there's not many people that look very heroic at all in the play, but certainly the Greeks look worse. And I watched a production of it, and even when Achilles defeats Hector, like he doesn't really defeat him. He lets a bunch of other guys beat, right. him, beat him to death. Right. And so um, it was that that's, that's helpful to think about that Shakespeare would have reason to be favoring the, the Trojan side of the story. Um, that's helpful. That's a really helpful. Thank you. Mm. I don't find that the Trojans come off particularly well either. Do they? No, they seem to have no. a lot of fine rhetoric but whereas the Greeks, to me, seem like complete yobs. They're always <laughs> fighting, brawling, swearing, insulting each other, um, eating too much. And then we meet the Trojans, and they're just obsessed with women and not in any particularly virtuous way. So there, there are problems of appetite on both sides of this war. Yeah. And it seems... It seems really problematic that the Trojans are also presented as having no real moral basis. And of course, the big question in the play is, why are they fighting this war? No one seems to think that that Helen's theft is worthy of the seven-year conflict that they've been in. Yeah, that was strange. There are multiple times where first Troilus and then um, her uncle Pandarus argue that, even argue that Cressida's more more beautiful right than than helen which was very kind of jarring after yeah reading the epics yeah all of the grandeur and kind of honor of the iliad seems to just have been take just scratched out of it in shakespeare's play and it it just felt like he wrote this play in just a really black mood is what it <laughs> felt like to me to make you know I, again shakespeare we, we we are here because we love shakespeare and we admire him greatly and i just want to say like a bad shakespeare play is still a mountain of an achievement but but that's part of the reason why for me it's so surprising that this is so kind of scraped clean of anything of 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 things to admire of people to admire of honor bound characters which opens the question maybe this is some sort of a satirical statement 
or something like that? Can we make that case? There was no one to root for for me. I mean, that's how I felt. So that's, I'm, I'm open to that idea. I agree that it's a satirical statement. And, you know, going back to your idea at the beginning of the Beatles ripping off Elvis, well, that assumes that the Beatles were fans of Elvis. Whereas mm. here, I think we've got a Shakespeare who's not that enamored by Homer's Iliad and instead shows us all the flaws in it. Mm. So he he's a bit of an iconoclast, I think, in this play in that he actually tears down Homer's Iliad and makes it look like a petty story. Mm. And one of the reasons he maybe was doing that was, as you were saying, perhaps satirical, that maybe he was satirizing Chapman's translation. Um, and there'd been a huge hype about Chapman's translation. And the idea was that virtue could be instructed from the Iliad. Well, Shakespeare huh. seems to suggest that that's a joke. You can't. There's no virtue to be found in it. So perhaps he was being a little petulant or provocative. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's, that's a really interesting notion. I mean, in, in the classical world, which all three of us traffic in, there's so much esteem for the Iliad and the Odyssey, and rightly so. They're absolutely magnificent. But I do sometimes get a little bit worried when we start talking about like the ethics of the Iliad. I think you have to be very, very, very selective in how you teach ethics from the Iliad. It is a war novel. What is, what's the um, Simone Vi essay? The Iliad, the poem of force. Is it force or power? But there's just, this is the central motif of that poem. It is about, it is about personal human assaults against other human beings. And yet there's absolutely admirable things and admirable characters in it, but also it's tricky to be, for it to be your ethical Bible. Well, I think it's complicated. I think in its best light, with the Iliad, you're talking about something. The question is: There's power, but the question that come is about honor, right? And mm-hmm. to whom is honor due, and for what things, and what what happens when someone is dishonored? And there's all kinds of parts of that, right? Helen being taken is dishonorable. Uh, dishonors yeah. Menelaus, and and obviously everything that happens with Achilles. And I think that's what he strips away in this so much mm. is that, um, there you're hard pressed to find someone in here to, to argue is acting honorably, no matter how you're defining honorable. I think with the, with the Iliad, you tend to get people, well, this, this is, this is the greater element of honor. So they, they favor this character over that one and vice versa. Um, Yeah. But I, I would be hard pressed to, to make that argument for someone in, in Troilus and Cressida. Yeah. That's right. And Shakespeare is also suggesting that there's no honorable cause for this war. Mm. So in Act 2, Scene 2, Hector and Troilus in front of Priam have a discussion about why they're fighting. And it's Hector who says it's tis mad idolatry to make the service greater than the god. Mm. So the god in this sense being Helen. And that what they are doing in order to preserve this idol of Helen is far beyond anything that is um, deserved or even appropriate because she's just a woman. And 
it's very strange how Troilus and Hector both seem to agree on that. Mm-hmm. And yet, they, in the end, they say, well, we better keep fighting because we've we've staked so much on it now, we'd look pretty stupid if we stopped. And and so there's no honour in their reasoning. What, what's the line from Macbeth? I'm in blood stepped so far that waiting back would be, you know, it would take just as much time. It's kind of a similar sort of reasoning, right? Yeah. Yeah. We're, okay, here so, we're here because we're here, I think. Right, 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 right. <laughs> like quid pro quo, we, let's stay here. Not quid pro quo, QBD, let's stay here. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the title characters, Troilus and Cressida. Um, Sarah Jane, can you give us some insight about where they come from kind of in the literary canon? And Brandon, I know that you had some insight here also. So... Shakespeare, as ever, is a bit of a magpie, and he's taken um, different material from different sources. So the the context of the Trojan War, he's taken from the Iliad, possibly from Chapman's translation. The story of Troilus and Cressida, though, is not in the Iliad. It's not in Homer's Iliad, but instead is invented by Chaucer in the 1300s in his poem, which is called Troilus and Crusade. And he invents the characters of Troilus, Cressida, and Pandarus, who Shakespeare borrows and puts in his play. And then later on, I think it's in the 1400s, we have a poem by um, Robert Henryson, who's a Scottish Scottish poet, writing in medieval Scots. And he writes a poem called The Testament of Cressid. Now, in, in Chaucer's poem... Troilus and Cressida's love is true and the demise of their love is tragic and Troilus sees Cressid with Diomede and doesn't know what's happened and is deeply saddened and then um, there's a sense that, that there was something noble and virtuous about their love and that perhaps Crescent didn't have a choice when it came to being disloyal. In Robert Henryson's Testament of Cressid, Crusade, um, she is disloyal and is punished for it. And in the poem, she regrets it. And one day she is sitting as a beggar outside the gates and she's a leper. And Troilus rides past in his shining armor and looks down on her in scorn and doesn't recognize her. Wow. Wow. And then in, in Shakespeare's poem, we have no clue what happens to either of the title characters at the end. <laughs> right. Right. We do know, though, that Cressida makes all these vows to Troilus and Troilus likewise. And, okay, I'll admit, I totally believed her. I was like, yeah, okay, great. This is going to be hard, but like, it's, <laughs> she's going to be strong. No. No, Troilus and it kind of overhears Troilus and Ulysses overhear this conversation between um, Cressida and Diomede, Diomedes, and they are Cressida has been pursued by Diomedes and they end up getting together. All of those vows are broken and Cressida, absolutely heartbroken, kind of doubles down on his hatred for the enemy and 
that's how he goes out, full of vengeance and venom over his betrayed lover. It's like, I'm not sure which one is worse. Cressida begging at the gates as a leper or her kind of going back on these vows and getting together with Diomede. I'm not, I'm not sure which one is worse. They both sound awful. In, the, in both those versions, though, she, she chooses to be, un, she's more unfaithful, right? Whereas in the Chaucer, when you're saying it's maybe forced upon her more. It's unclear yeah. as to what's happened. It's a mystery. And Troilus yeah. thinks the worst. Huh. And and a lot of time has passed is the other thing. Whereas in, in Shakespeare's play, as he always does, he he contracts yeah. compresses the time frame to make it a lot more dramatic. So yeah. Dryden hated Shakespeare's Troilus <laughs> and Crusade. Um he did. and he hated it so much that he had to write it again <laughs> in his really yeah so in his Cressida is disloyal sorry no Cressida is true and she mm. commits suicide mm. and Troilus dies fighting the Greeks which is a pretty straight up ending a bit more satisfying than Shakespeare's y- yes I, well I found myself wondering at some point why are they even the title characters like their screen time together is almost almost none like in in the same scenes and then they're even not in many many of the scenes um or it doesn't even have have anything to do with their i mean you know you get that in other stories too where hamlet's off scene but the story's still about him and his rise right um not sorry not hamlet uh, i was thinking of henry um henry the fifth but but in this case they're out of a lot there's a lot of scenes that have nothing to do with them and their storyline or at least it felt that way. And so, mm. um, yes, but I think maybe it shows that if love is so debased in this world of mm. the play, then it brings low the infidelity of Helen mm. to Menelaus as well. Mm. Parallel to that. I didn't even think about that. That makes, yeah, well, it makes a lot of sense. And if he is, if, if there is, if he's being satirical and if and if you like you suggested in response to this i guess it was a recent translation of of the iliad which may have raised the popularity of the story again he couldn't just call it the trojan war then you know maybe he needed a, a different a different title a different draw into the story to then set the stage for his his satire mm. and shakespeare has always wanted to do something original with his sources and that's going to be difficult if you're taking on the Iliad. Yeah. So he had to, he had to do something pretty radical, I think. Yeah. If he was going to say something new about it. So he mixes it in with the English literary tradition. And and then as was always the case in the Renaissance, Britain was keen to show itself superior to the Romans and the Greeks. Victory. So looking back to them, but but obviously far superior now with everything that they knew in the the modern world as it was. What did you guys make of the character? Um, I'm going to butcher the name. Thersites? Thersites? This kind of... Thersites. Um, He is a slave who's serving Ajax. Vicious, um, witty, funny, but very acerbic in his treatment of basically everybody who come who he comes across 
Um, are we, he is not the kind of wise fool that we see, say, in Lear right. or in Twelfth Night. He's, he's a cynic, but in a strange way, you might make the case, I might make the case, that he's kind of like the commentator of the play who narrates most accurately with his acid tongue, which again, for me, inclines me to say, this is more satire than anything else because he gets so narr- he gets so many narrative points and um, they're so destructive that he seems to me like he is like one of the real truth tellers, maybe the only truth teller in the whole play. Is that plausible? Is that reasonable? Yeah, I think so. And doesn't it say so much if the most honest character in the play is the most um, governed by appetite? I mean, he's, yes. he's always fighting and yet he's a coward. He's His language is filthy. I imagine he would have received many laughs for his jibes and taunts and insults that he mm. that, that those would be sort of cheap laughs i think and i don't know if i'm missing something deeper in him but i wonder if the play the play is questioning the morality of war the mm. nature of honor the redundancy of chivalry in a world that's controlled by sexual appetite then what we're left with with is Thersites. That's that's what man is like with all yeah. of his glossy armor taken off. And yeah. it's, it's quite a bleak picture. Really. Yeah, e- even among Shakespeare's other um kind of tawdry characters, the, he was he's something different to me. Like he's he he's not amusing like when you hear Falstaff and his Right, right, his, exactly, Brandon. His, Dirty language isn't isn't even couched in kind of a clever innuendo. You know, it's it's just he's just vulgar. It's, yeah, you know, much more so I think than than any of the other characters that I've read. Um, which really did strike me, and it's hard to place him as a fool like we normally would, who's right. kind of dispensing wisdom a little more. Um, and he struck me as uh, surprisingly modern commentator if he's the comment mm. if he's the narrator if he's the one commenting um not that i'm that well versed in the in the the other literary text of shakespeare's time but he strikes me as the kind of person you would almost get in a in a modern movie who's just vulgar and commenting and kind of slimy and is there yeah. but doesn't really fight and you know um it was it was he was a surprising character for me for sure yeah it's certainly strips away some of the glory of war if there's any myth or honor surrounding the idea of renaissance man going to war and it being some sort of great and high calling shakespeare doesn't allow that in the play yeah like societies yeah i want to turn our attention to ulysses so um just a little bit of background. Ulysses is a character, of course, Odysseus from who shows up in the Iliad and is the starring role of uh, the Odyssey. And he's a man of wily intelligence. He is clever. He is 
full of stratagems in, in all of these books. He also shows up, of course, in Virgil's Aeneid. So those of you who maybe you know Homer, but you're less familiar with Virgil, Virgil's big work is the Aeneid. And the Aeneid is kind of a telling or a retelling of the Trojan War from the point of view of the Trojans. And it's also a kind of retelling of the Odyssey, of a trip, of a voyage in search of home. In the Odyssey, it's Odysseus seeking to be reunited with Penelope at Ithaca. Um, in Virgil's Aeneid, the first half of the Aeneid is about Aeneas, the kind of father of Rome, the man who will become the father of Rome, in search of a new home since his home has been destroyed. So he and his men aboard ships searching for that new home. Ulysses shows up in the Aeneid, and the vision that we get of Ulysses in the Aeneid, of course, is very different than the one that we get in the Odyssey, right? Do, do one of you care to explain the kind of like differing versions that we have of this one character, one through the eyes of Virgil and one through the eyes of Homer? Well, Homer's presenting him as one of his one of his ideal types for for virtue and man, right? The, it, more so, um, uh, if if Achilles is is the primary primary focus in in the Iliad, then obviously well, Odysseus, Odysseus is in the Odyssey. But but his cleverness, his craftiness is 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 always painted by Homer as a as a virtue, as a um, mm. as something to emulate. Whereas Virgil's going to make him the bad guy. He's going to make him crafty and sneaky. Maybe sneaky versus crafty or clever, right? He's he's underhanded almost. Is the is the presentation um, not to be trusted even by his own his own people? Um, and so it's it's a pretty big flip um, to as far as redefining that character. Um, mm -hmm. Probably more than any of the other Greek characters are redefined by by any of the Romans uh, would be. Odysseus, um, uh, because of he's probably seen more as the one who's behind the the idea that ultimately sacks sacks Troy. So, yeah. And I defer to you both entirely in all matters classical. <laughs> I I know a bit about English literature, but not as much about the Greek and Roman texts. But in terms of the Ulysses that Shakespeare gives us, he mm -hmm. has two of the most important speeches in the play. Mm -hmm. which are fascinating. And I hear his voice as sort of a trumpet of maybe Tudor propaganda. So if we look at his first speech, Oh, really? Really? In Act 1, Scene 3, he talks about degree, which is the order of being, essentially. Now, the whole um, Renaissance state revolved around a belief in the chain of being, which was mm -hmm. God, king or queen, man, woman, animal, vegetable, mineral. And, and that was universally believed. I'm sure people questioned it, but that was that was the conception of order. And so in Act 1, Scene 3, when Ulysses gives his speech about degree being visarded, it's almost strange that he would need to say this because the people already knew that there was a mm. cosmic order, that there was a cosmos. And he three times says, if if we disregard degree, then everything will fall apart. Everything will unravel. Mm. And I wonder why in 1601, 1602, does 
Shakespeare need Ulysses to say this? Is it because the queen is old? As far as we know, she had no heirs. 1603, she dies. Is there a fear that the state is going to unravel and that people need to maintain their faith in the sort of divine cosmic order of things? But he says, um, when degree is shaked, which is the ladder to all high designs, the enterprise is sick. Take but degree away, untune that string, and hark what discord follows. And then we get the famous um, image of the wolf from the play, which is then everything it includes itself in power. Power mm. into will, will into appetite, and appetite and universal wolf must make perforce and universal prey and last eat up himself. Now, this moment in the play to me sounds so modern. It's almost like he's talking mm -hmm. about a sort of post-secular age where all the old ideals and traditions have been abandoned and what you get instead is chaos and every it's every man for himself. Everyone is governed by their own desires. And so Ulysses is warning against that. And of course, he's speaking to an audience at the turn of the century, from 1500s to 1600s. So... Mm. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's so interesting. It's so interesting. And, and that does make sense if there is anxiety out in the world about the queen being, you know, growing old and growing ill and dying and not having an, an heir lined up. That is a kind of, um, how would you say it? A kind of atmospheric anxiety that surely was hanging on England, not just among the nobles, but among everybody. Where is our next ruler going to come from? It's funny because we are doing, my friend Emily Maeda and I are just finishing up The Winter's Tale, which, Sarah Jane, we talked about um, how much we loved Coriolanus, maybe like the most underrated play. The Winter's Tale has got to be up there for me also. Just a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful play. And at the end of that play, Things that were absolutely wrong. The king, in a rage, um, condemns his wife, loses both of his children, he thinks. And at the end of the play, 16 years after his terrible jealousies kind of ruin his kingdom, he is reunited both with his queen and he discovers his daughter, who he thought he just left exposed on a hillside. And so I was thinking, and we were talking about. For Leontes, that king in the winter's tale, to be growing old without an heir, that is a worry in his kingdom that is hard for us to really recognize. I mean, in the United States, we have had peaceful transfers of power for since our beginning. It's it's a miracle. And there is, but there's been so much anxiety historically in monarchies around the transfer of power. And so, yeah, to have Ulysses in this speech talk about what could become of us, you know, like if it just becomes a war of power against power, you know, one against the other, what's the, um, what's the Hobbes line about just, you know, how wretched human life is, you know, Ulysses is kind of like warning us against that. And it does make sense against the backdrop of potentially losing a queen who has no heir 
fortunately, James comes along, you know, the story is, is preserved, but Ulysses does make sense against that backdrop for me. The other, you, you mentioned another monologue from Ulysses, Sarah Jane. Um, are you thinking act three, scene two? That's right. When he's talking about time. Yeah. And time, time is an interesting question in this play, isn't it? Because from its publication in the first folio, which is probably around 1609, um, it then wasn't performed for 300 years. Mm. It's not then performed until the 1700s. And there aren't many records of contemporary performances either. So mm. was it ever performed at the Globe? I don't know. There's not a lot of evidence mm. to say that it was. Potentially it was performed in the Inns of Court in front of um, a sort of very intelligent lawyer audience. But it's certainly in its time, the play doesn't seem to have a big stage history suggesting it wasn't very popular. It wasn't one of the big public plays. Um, but I think we could say that this is a play that has come into its own in a different time. It, it's time has more been now mm. when we mm. are seeing a disintegrated society. And certainly after World Wars One and Two, the play became more popular because people felt that they had lost some of the old Victorian ideals that they held. And this is a play that certainly chimes with that in the way that it criticizes honor, chivalry, and all the, the good things about going to war. I've, I've read that it's production kind of zenith in two different places. First after World War One, just as you said, and also for us, after the Vietnam War, there was a huge uptick in mm. productions of Troilus and Cressida, which makes perfect sense. You know, this is our, like one of the real black eyes on our country. Um, it's not too far in our rear view mirror even. And it, it makes sense that that would be um, having Troilus and Cressida kind of point out the banality of war would make a lot of sense after those two terrible... Yeah. I, I at just least, at least World War One. Excuse, sorry, Brennan. At least World War One nope. had a uh, had a noble kind of like drive behind it. I'm not even. I'm not. Maybe maybe the same could be said about uh, Vietnam. But anyway, I'm sorry, Brennan. Well, go ahead. Maybe for both of them, but for both of them, it ends up so futile. I, I was just, I was going to say I just a few nights ago watched with my brothers in law um, the last year's. Um, version of of the film version of all quiet on the western front um mm. which i which i have uh, i haven't read um but my brother-in-law who's who was in the military has read and said that this was a pretty good uh version of but they they kind of they really point that out at the end of that story um that <laughs> the germans moved and then like the lines got set like within my like, first few months of the war and they mm. they barely budged after that it was just a bunch of people dying at the same line for several years and um and in the end nothing they don't get even from the german side they don't gain anything they just lost everything um and so that makes complete sense to me that it would peak after that war um when there was just so much death and nothing everything went back to how it was. Nothing changed even from that war. No one won anything. Yeah. Um, and so uh, that, that might be the, 
the this the best way for me to start seeing this because um as if if he's really talking a lot more about the futility of war often and what we're fighting over um then it brings the play into a maybe a cleaner light for me because i was really struggling uh with this one (laughs) what are we what are we doing here shakespeare what exactly are we doing here yeah well and just because there was like i said before there was just no characters to root for um and maybe that's the point like the there maybe that's what he was trying to get at yeah yeah and shakespeare does tie love and war together in his imagery and in his dramatic dynamism. I mean, if we look at Antony and Cleopatra, that's Antony's motivation for the war is tied in with his erotic love for mm-hmm. Cleopatra. We have a scene where love is killed <laughs> and then the war sort of unravels. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure whether because World War One and World War Two are so messy that it means that chivalry died or glory died or heroism died. It was more that the, the shallow perceptions of what those things are were shaken. Mm. And so the way history likes to read World War One and World War Two in this country anyway is to say, you know, we we lost our faith in God and sort of woke up from some kind of idealistic delusion, which mm. is not true. It's not true for everyone. And it's it's more that we lost our faith in the idols of Victorian virtue, I think. Mm. It's it, uh, I can't I mean, speaking from our side of the pond, it it feels like that was worse with World War One, even than it was with World War Two, um, that. You, that's where you get this prolific group of of writers and artists who are kind of, um, m- if not nihilistic, more more in that di- move in that direction. More there, there seemed to be a, f- a farther falling off of that ideal, um, and maybe because it had already happened when World War II rolled around, there was less to be less delusion to be lost. Um, but you almost get a bounce back a little bit after that, at least especially in, in the United States. Um, you know, World War One produces guys like like Hemingway, but World War Two, you get this kind of bounce back of of okay, we're going to rebuild everything. You know, what I mean that, that that seems to be more the the spirit uh, uh, post war. Yeah, and there's that sense in the United States that um, we're kind of like stepping into the throne that, to some degree, England most recently had, which is like superpower we're the big superpower now and the soviet union of course is like right on our heels and we go right into the the um the cold war but there is a sense of it seems like a hopefulness coming out of world war ii at least over here that um it was more my sense of the feeling after world war one was relief and the feeling after World War II was both relief and there's hope on the horizon. You know, we can do things differently. You're right, though, Sarah Jane, about, I mean, now we're talking about World War I. We're a little bit straight afar from <laughs> Shakespeare. But but when I think about um, it's the slaughter that was World War I, it, it was a kind of um, ancient tactics with modern weaponry kind of war, yes. you know, in which you're losing 50,000 yeah. 
boys and young men in a day in France. You know, there's something just so horrific about that. Of course, it makes you reconsider shallowly held ideals, habits, manners. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that brings us back to Ulysses' speech, which is about yeah. glory, kleos in in the Iliad. It's one of the few Greek words I know, so I'm going to use it. I know that Achilles is all about Kleos. He's seeking the continuation of his name through his deeds. Now, when Ulysses talks to Achilles about this, Shakespeare's Achilles, um, he he says you need to blaze bright momentarily and then accept that someone else is going to come and you will be eaten up by oblivion. And he gives us a very troubling portrait of time as a fashionable host. So someone Mm. who can't be trusted, someone who's got bribes in his back pocket that he's just feeding to oblivion because oblivion's coming up behind about to eat everyone. Mm. And of course, the whole point of the speech is to try and get Achilles to fight Hector rather than Ajax. But um, the the best motivation that Ulysses can offer is you will have some kind of momentary fame and Achilles, if you don't fight, you're going to be trampled on because everyone else is coming up ahead of you. So it's not very motivating when you look at it. Sarah Jane, Brennan, I want to play that monologue from Ulysses and it's a little bit longer, but it's worth listening to the lines that Sarah Jane just mentioned. Though less than yours in past must or top yours for time is like a fashionable host that slightly shakes his parting guest by the hand and with his arms outstretched as he would fly. Let's let's listen to this from Ulysses. Time, my lord, hath a wallet at his back wherein he puts arms for oblivion, a great-sized monster of ingratitudes. Those scraps are good deeds past, which are devoured as fast as they are made, forgot as soon as done. A perseverance dear my lord, keeps honour bright. To have done is to hang quite out of fashion like a rusty mail in monumental mockery. Take the instant way, for honour travels in a street so narrow where one but goes at rest. Keep then the path, for emulation hath a thousand sons that one by one pursue. If you give way or hedge aside from the direct forthright, like to an entered tide, they all rush by and leave you hindmost. Or like a gallant horse, fallen in first rank, lie there for pavement to the abject rear, are run and trampled on. Then what they do in present, though less than yours in past, must o'ertop yours. The time is like a fashionable host that slightly shakes his parting guest by the hand, and with his arms outstretched as he would fly, grasps in the cover. The welcome ever smiles, and farewell goes out sighing. Let not virtue seek remuneration for the thing it was. For beauty, wit, high birth, a vigour of bone, desert in service, love, friendship, charity are subjects all to envious and calumniating time. One touch of nature makes the whole world kin that all with one consent praise newborn gods, though they are made and moulded of things past, and give to dust that is a little gilt more lord than gilt or dusted. The present eye praises the present object. 
Then marvel not, thou great and complete man, that all of the Greeks begin to worship Ajax, since things in emotion begin to catch the eye, then what not stirs? The cry went out on thee, and still is might, and yet it may again, if thou wouldst not entomb thyself alive, and case thy reputation in thy tent, whose glorious deeds, but in these fields of late, made emulous missions amongst the gods themselves, and drave great Mars to faction. You heard Ulysses there say, the present eye praises the present object. Then marvel not, thou great and complete man, that all the Greeks begin to worship Ajax, et cetera, et cetera. So um, this is kind of like the vision of whatever, immortality and honor that we're hearing from Ulysses. And that takes us into kind of like one of the great heroes of the Iliad, Hector. Hector falls at the end of this play, just as he does fall at the end of the Iliad. But there's something so noble in his death in the Iliad, and there's something so ignoble in his death here in this play, isn't there, Sarah Jane? Um, He sees shiny armor. Yeah. So the speech from Ulysses is so much about keeping on a bright Uh, And we can understand that in our culture as the need to always have the latest fashion. And that Mm. if you're involved in fashion, you need to be buying new clothes all the time or you're going to look outdated. And so Ulysses is pressing that hard on on, uh, Achilles that he has to keep doing great deeds to keep his honor bright or else he's going to look as if he's out of fashion. And at the end, he says, um, really, all we can do is is put some gilding over dust. We're just putting some bright, shiny gold over mortal dust, okay? mm. which is an image we can all understand. Yeah. So then we have, for me in the play, the demise of Hector is absolutely astonishing. I, I can't get over how strange it is. So if we go to Act 5, Scene 6, a little earlier, Hector has encountered Achilles and has overcome him and shown him mercy and said, Achilles says, don't kill me. And Hector says, all right, I won't and lets him go. Maybe foolish, but that's something about Hector's um, propensity to show mercy in battle, which Troilus speaks about. And then moments later on the battlefield, Hector sees an unnamed warrior's armor. Mm. He says, stand, stand, thou Greek, thou art a goodly mark. I like thy armor well. I'll brush it and unlock the rivets all, but I'll be master of it. So he sees something shiny. He sees the next newest, most fashionable piece of armor, and he wants to wear it so that he can have the glory in the battlefield. And so he he kills the man. But then what's so shocking in Act 5, Scene 9, he says when he's taking off the helmet inside, the body of the warrior is actually rotten. He's only just killed the man, but it says, most putrefied core, so fair without, that goodly armor thus has cost thy life. Now is my day's work done, rest, sword. And he's he's taking his armor off, he's put his sword down and he's going to put on the new armor. But it's it's really interesting and central to the play, I think, that you have a speech from Ulysses about gilding over dust. And then you have Hector seeing some fashionable armor, taking it off, 
the wearer That's and finding great... inside that I did not see that at all. And rotten. And it's something about the way that these characters value the surface of things without considering the core. And this is what costs Hector his life because when he's put his sword down, up comes Achilles and sets the Myrmidons on him and, and he's killed yeah. and no mercy is shown to him. Now, there's a double irony because if Hector's um, principle in war is to show mercy, well, he didn't show any to the man in the fashionable armor. And mm. then he gets killed by Achilles. But Shakespeare seems to really strip away this idea of uh, glory as being at the front and being the most fashionable and brightest in your deeds, because underneath yeah. it's rotten and you're going to die anyway. You can't fight time. Yeah, he 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 paints them all with this kind of um, yeah, like you're saying, fashionable brush, which is a which is a departure from Homer's version of the story, right? Um, this this armor is on an unnamed soldier. Um, you know, if you in, in the Iliad, the armor he strips is is Achilles' armor on Patroclus, and in order to do that, he has to kill Patroclus, who who then Achilles Achilles only fights him because he's because he's upset about Patroclus's death, right? So there's there's so much more honor bound up in in the version Homer gives us, um, yeah, because he's 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 avenging someone, he's avenging a you know. A, a beloved brother um or in, in in war and and he and he fights more honorably he he attacks uh hector on the battlefield and they fight man to man and in this one it was just it was so striking like you said to have the myrmidons just kind of um beat him to i mean just yeah sack him and and um so I'll admit that made it hard for me because I love the I love the Odyssey. So I mean the Iliad so much to see some of these characters so reduced, but Hector's reduced also, right? He's not yeah uh, honorable either, and it makes me wonder that as you, you know, listening to you, Sarah Jane, if, if he was if he was less um, he was less criticizing Homer's Homer's glorification of of men in battle. And possibly just using these characters who are so well known and considered heroic for centuries to uh, as kind of a stand-in for 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 to to point out some of the the um, hypocrisy of the of the men of his own day, right? That are that are claiming the same kind of honor for their reasons for their reasons for doing things, but he's he's using um, Hector's words and and. Um, Ulysses's words to point out to them, you are not fighting for the same kind of things that they were talking about in 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 Homer's works. You're fighting for temporary glory, for being fashionable, to be seen well in court. All these kind of things, right? That might have been more of an issue in in his day, um, where the court is the court, right? And people are hanging around the palace all the time. In in Homer's day, when this fight's over, they're all going home to their own homes. They're not, you know. Um, their honor isn't going to be kind of praised the same way in the court. So mm. maybe it's a less of attack on Homer and just a, just a vehicle to, to point out their differences. Yes. A vehicle exactly to point out some of the flaws in the society that he's mixing in. And then 
And then we can find something good and instructive about the play because Shakespeare's saying we need a better kind of heroism than this. This isn't good enough. And Milton does the same thing when he writes Paradise Lost and he compares Satan to Achilles. He says that old kind of hero who's full of rhetoric and is very pompous and full of his own worth, who glorifies man and pays no regard to God or the gods, mm. that's dead. That's that's bound to the dust. That's going nowhere. We need something better. It points us to something better. The lines from All the World's a Stage, I just remembered um, the part about the soldier. So the monologue about these kind of seven stages of man, beginning with the infant and going all the way through old age. Remember the description of the soldier? Then like a soldier full of strange oaths and bearded like a pard jealous in honor, sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth. That last line, seeking the bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth, it seems like that's maybe our epitaph for this play. That's what this play <laughs> would seem to be about, perhaps. Yeah. Let's do a, let's do a better one next time. <laughs> <laughs> what were you going to say, Sarah yeah. Jane? Well, just that that made me think of that image of the mouth of that wolf, that ravenous wolf that Ulysses talks about, that appetite is a universal wolf that mm. ends up devouring itself. And that seems to be what happens to all the characters here. And Hector yeah. is eaten up by his own appetite there for something shiny. He's shown to be very trivial. Um there's more to say, I think, about Troilus and Cressida and their relationship and how there's no romance there, really. It's actually just quite transactional and lustful. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, it's very lustful. And it very, leaves, yeah, it leaves us wanting something higher, doesn't it, as the audience? Yeah. Because Pandras' yeah, final sure. speech is bizarre. He insults the audience. It is. It's yeah. right, right, well, right. And th and that's where the when the Colin Cressida more beautiful than Helen I think was so jarring for me, and I think it's because like you're saying in this in this play that physical beauty is just is just a lustful thing that they're talking about, whereas in the in the epics and in ancient even ancient plays and poetry that physical beauty is a stand-in for actual virtue, right? It, it implies actual virtue that there's something worthy of Helen, in, in that that's that's lacking here. Right. Um, and that, that he's addressing. Um, yeah, the Pandarus one was weird. And it was so I looked him up because I was like, I don't know what's happening here. And I don't know yeah. if this is true or not, but it but it appears because that um, Troilus's last line is that um, pursue thy life and live I with thy name. Either I think um, not from him, not from Shakespeare, but from Chaucer, because Chaucer uses the same a same version of the same name. It's where we get the idea of pandering, like the, the to pander to someone. Yeah, I read actually that. Drawn I read from the that, name, yeah. from what I understand, from Chaucer, and so he's using that here, and which he's then doing again, right? In that in that final, he's like chastising the audience, but he's kind of like, "What I just did, what I was, everybody was praising me for what I did a minute ago, because um, I was pandering on behalf of other people." Um, mm. Yeah, he was a he was an interesting character. But again, not one that you want to let you feel very good about. Right. Yeah. Right. And and Troilus hates him at the end right. because 
you know, just consistent with all of the imagery that we've looked at of, of the Trojans and the Greeks prizing things for their surface value. Um, Troilus also thought of Cressid, Cressida in that way. And when he sees her with Diomedes, he says something like, he can have the greasy relics as if she's some sort of leftover bones from a yeah. Yeah. Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> and, yeah. and so then he hates Pandarus because he feels as though he was duped into taking something that wasn't of any value. But and so... But he's self-deceiving, right? Because the first yeah. in the first scenes, he's begging Pandarus for the help. I mean, essentially, mm. uh, he, yeah, he's it's it's all shallow for him from the beginning, and now that it's he's someone else has had her, he's he's just kind of turned on everybody. And the word panda, I wonder if it was invented by, if it was invented by. Um, Chaucer. No, Chaucer took it from the Latin. Mm. Okay. Well, he get the name from the Latin, right? He got the, the character's name from the Latin was what I had seen. And then so and he I made the character's very, name to kind of... It's a very interesting etymology of the word because the character Pandarus mm-hmm. appears as a Trojan archer in Homer's Iliad. So it's a tiny, tiny part but then from that, huh. you can see Chaucer's imagination working. He sees the archer, Cupid, and then he makes uh, between the lovers. Interesting. That's clever. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's clever. Oh, he's the one that shoots the arrow that messes up the piece. I just pulled it up. Okay, that's... Oh, is he really? He's having a. He's the one that shoots Menelaus when they're about to have the peaceful return of Helen and starts the fighting again. Oh, oh wow. Wow. Okay. There's a, okay. We're going to about to do like a deep, like a deep classical cut. Brandon, <laughs> you probably know the answer to this in, there's a similar episode in the Aeneid in which this famous stag, which is kind of like the pet of, I don't remember the name of the character, but one of the kind of local heroes, Aeneas and Aeneas and his men, arrive on the shore and one of the local heroes has a pet stag and one of Aeneas's men goes out hunting, kills this stag, huge, like they had a fragile piece, huge um, uproar and, you know, the men are clashing again. And I just Mm -hmm. wonder if that character is somehow tied into this whole affair of Pandarus also. Probably so. I wish, I wish I could remember the guy's name, but oh well. Yeah, it's because uh, we gotta leave it as a mystery. It's with Do you the find Latin, him? Well, it's with the Latinists. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but it's the Latin Latium people Actium. that they're. Do you mean Actium? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Hmm. I just realized as well that Chaucer takes as his source Boccaccio, who's writing mm. in Italian, and thirteen hundred. Uh, yeah, maybe. 1300 late 1200s and mm-hmm. so Chaucer maybe doesn't think up the idea of the Cupid link but he takes that actually from Boccaccio so the more we look into things the less original they are yeah yeah <laughs> right yeah, and we'll, it's so when true he, he goes from being this kind of skilled warrior who causes problems to being this kind of person who's using his words um 
to to facilitate things he may or may not mm. should be facilitating. But what I had seen was that that it's it's the it's that usage it's the use of by uses by Chaucer and Shakespeare of that character that leads to the term pander how we use it now mm. in English. They draw that from his, his the characteristics of that of their their version of Pandarus, not the more ancient one. Um, yeah, I thought and was it fascinating. also means, it also means pimp. And at the end of the play, <laughs> really, Pandarus is saying, "Hey, all you pimps in the audience, what huh. uh, you feel sorry for yourselves?" He says. <laughs> wow, I don't understand that final speech from Pandarus at all. I yeah. All I can take away is that the whole thing is just a cutting judgment on his on Shakespeare's audience and 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 the I mean from the satire to the to the final yeah. speech is just in case you didn't catch it from the story, I'm gonna have this guy give it to you in yeah. his last lines. Right. Mm. In case you didn't realize this is about you. Right, right. Yeah. Here's yeah. the yeah. sting at the end of the tale. Yeah, Yikes. this is about yeah. you. And of course, there would have been pimps and prostitutes in the audience. It's where people went to get business, I'm sure. And with that, we've wrapped up Troilus and Crescent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I will say that I have a better. I feel like I have a better understanding of what he might have been doing. I'm st I'm still struggling with um, how good of a play it actually. Like, is. why did he do it? Like, why well, did he spend so much? You said earlier, like even when Shakespeare's not so good plays, they're usually they're better than most plays, which is how mm -hmm. I, which is mm -hmm. what I almost always say when it's more of his not, you know, yeah, obvious best plays. But I was ending this one like this might not actually, actually might not be a good play. <laughs> I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like certainly yeah. he's got one dud in his canon, right? Like there's got to be a few that are just they just didn't work. Yeah. To, to say one final redeeming thing about it from my perspective, maybe it was ahead of its time. And because we have a conception of what we would like a Shakespeare play to be, mm -hmm. and this one doesn't fit the mold, and then we find it harder to praise. But in terms of its dramatic accomplishments, it it is um, quite brilliant in its mimetic structure. So the mm. structure of the scenes imitates the total collapse of order that's happening in the story. And, mm -hmm. you know, so in the final act, it breaks off into those very short scenes, um, which are all really fragmented. We're never quite sure what's happening, who's on stage, who's not. And that in itself is it's quite a clever dramatic thing to do when you're thinking that the order of the day was Aristotle's poetics and unity of time, place and action. Shakespeare completely breaks away from that. I mean, who else would try to put the Trojan War on the stage? Right, right. Didn't try right. to do that. Right. Well, yeah. Wes, Wes Maybe Callahan for good said, reason. Wes Callahan said, "There's always a mistake if you show Helen because you can't have a person who he says the problem. One of the first well, it's not the only problem, but the problem with that movie Troy is that you can't have anybody play Helen and show her face. So mm. it's a tough, it's a tough, tough call." Um, yeah, that's what I wondered. Going back to Tim's original analogy, like if you're going to cover Elvis, if you're going to cover Elvis, you you have to make it different, but you have to also land it. And I'm not sure. I think that's the tough. That's like, I think all those elements we've talked about are there, but I'm not sure it lands when you're just watching it without without the kind of analysis we get to go through and and do this. I wonder how well it would have landed with the audience, whether they would have got it or not. Um, you know, yeah, who knows. I don't think they liked it. I don't think no, it was performed much. No. 
but we're talking about it today, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to thank both of you for joining me for the plays, the thing. Uh, I just one little word about our platform host. It is the Circe Institute. Um, and I'm going to spell that for you. C I R C E Institute. If you'd like to know more about them, go to Circe Institute.org, a leader in the classical Christian renewal movement. And you can find out everything about what that means on their website. We will be coming soon with more full five-act discussions on Shakespeare's plays, as well as some of the other lesser-known plays that we're just going to do one-off podcasts on. Um, And you guys, we have set it a goal to do all of the plays, all of Shakespeare's plays on this show and I can actually see the end in sight, if you believe it. I, I have basically a production schedule that has all of the remaining plays on the calendar, almost on the calendar. Nice. Um, and I plan to bring, you don't know it yet, but I plan to bring you guys back <laughs> for at least a couple of those. So uh, stay tuned for my invitation. Um, I want to thank listeners for joining us and tune in again next time for The Play's The Thing, your one-stop shop for all things Shakespeare. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.